0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jack Kelly, author of the new book, Valcor, the 1776 campaign that saved the cause of liberty. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. Well, a lot of people are familiar with the major American Revolution battles and campaigns such as Lexington and Concord or the Battle of Bunker Hill. Can you tell us about Valcour and its importance in the American Revolution? Yeah, I um,
1: often refer to this as the most important unknown battle of the Revolutionary War. And um, there's a number of reasons why it's important, and there's a number of reasons why it's unknown. Uh, The importance was that In 1776, which was the crucial year of the Revolution, uh, the British were intending to um, attack from Canada down a corridor that runs down um, the St. Lawrence River, uh, Lake Champlain, and then down the Hudson River to New York City. That was the main access to the interior of America. It was um, really the only route that, that... was open from Canada into the into the rebellious colonies, and it was the back door to New England. So once they got on Lake Champlain, which is in northern New York, uh, or on the Hudson River, they could attack eastward into uh, New England, which was really the seat of the rebellion at that time. Um, so their strategy was to attack both ends of that corridor. They attacked from Canada. Um, and came down the uh, Lake Champlain, and they attacked New York City. Of course, George Washington, most people are much more familiar with the campaign in around New York City in which George Washington was quite uh, soundly defeated. Uh, so if the British had been able to succeed in coming down Lake Champlain and getting onto the Hudson River uh, from the north, uh, that would probably have ended the war. And that was the intent of the British that year in 1776. They wanted in one season to put down the rebellion. They sent over the largest expeditionary military force in their history to do so. So the fact that the British were stopped from that invasion from the north, it was crucial to the continuing the war. Um, of course, Washington made his great coup by uh, crossing the Delaware River on Christmas night in 1776 and somewhat restoring morale down around the New York area. Um, but I think the the battle on Lake Champlain was really crucial to the outcome of the war.
0: Well, the British Navy is heralded for its accompli- accomplishments and expertise. How did the scrappy Navy of of quickly constructed gunboats fight the British Navy? Were there specific naval tactics that the Americans used against the British?
1: Uh, yes, the, the, it, it was a very uh, improvised battle, um, particularly on the American side. They had to uh, build a, a fleet of gunboats. These were about uh, boats were about 50 feet long. They were really oversized rowboats. They had a sail, but they weren't, were not were not Uh, particularly seaworthy. They had, each of the gunboats had three cannon on them. Uh, They had a few larger boats, schooners and so forth, but all relatively small boats. The British built some larger boats. Um, They weren't able to sail, because there's rapids along the the connection between um, uh, the uh, St. Lawrence River in Canada and Lake Champlain. which uh, There's a, a river called the Richelieu River that connects the two of them. They had to also had to build their ships or dismantle ships and then bring them up and, and rebuild them closer to the lake. But they had much larger ships. And of course, the Americans were using uh, their crews were mostly drawn from the army, so they were not that familiar with sailing. Uh, they had to train them. They had to uh complete the boats as quickly as possible they spent about 6 weeks building the the small fleet and then stand up to the british um the, the royal navy uh which was manned by very experienced sailors and uh and gunners and so forth so it was a very much a david and goliath kind of battle um and um i think we have to give credit to the main commander of the american fleet uh, who happened to be Benedict Arnold, and uh, that's somewhat surprising to a lot of people, who th- only think of Benedict Arnold as somebody who betrayed his country. But he was a—he uh, had been a sea captain before the um, war started, and he was very familiar with sailing. And he was the the person that really managed the building of the fleet, and then uh, was the captain of, of the fleet uh, and and uh, set the strategy
0: for defeating the British on Lake Champlain. And did we, did we, were we able to do that by just kind of overwhelming the, the ships with these small gunboats?
1: Uh, the, uh, um, strategy that, uh, Benedict Arnold came up with was to hide his fleet. The, the Northern part of Lake Champlain, uh, which is, sort of right on the Canadian border, uh, is very Mm -hmm. complex. There's several hundred islands in there, a lot of coves and inlets. And one of those islands that's down along the New York shore was called Valcour Island, and it's about a mile offshore. He he took his fleet, and he had about eight gunboats and um, maybe a half a dozen other uh, small ships. And hid them behind that island. Um, the British, having built this much larger fleet, uh, came roaring down the lake once they finally got ready. Um, and they had assumed that he would retreat. Was, that would have been the logical thing to do. He, he had a because he had a, a smaller <laughs> fleet, and he was likely to be defeated. They they wanted to catch up with him so they didn't go in and explore behind every island and in every cove and he let them go past valcour island then sent some of his boats out to fire on them from behind and then drew back into into a like a a, a cove or a, a bay behind um, valcour island and the british had to turn around and then come back into the wind with the, their ships and try to get into this rather narrow bay um where the Americans had set up their their line of uh, gunboats so they were unable to get most of their larger ships into there they, were, they couldn't tack back and forth well enough to to move against the wind mm-hmm. so they ended up uh, uh fighting the the British gunboats which were they had more numerous gunboats but they, they each of them only had one cannon on them and it was largely a cannon duel, it went on all day, and they uh, basically fought the British to a draw. And they were then trapped inside the inside this bay by the uh, larger British ships, so it, was, it looked like it was going to be curtains for them in the morning, but at least they'd held
0: off the British f- fleet for that day. And can you tell us about the roles of General Philip Schuler and the former British officer Horatio Gates played in Valcour?
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's uh, General Schuyler's his name. He was a Dutch. Uh, oh, Schuyler. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, he was a Dutch, um, very wealthy Dutch businessman from Albany and uh, actually spoke Dutch at home. The, Al- Albany was a Dutch speaking town at that time. And he was the overall commander in the north. Um, he was the equivalent of George Washington, who was commanding the the um, the army in the south. And he um, basically stayed in Albany and, and 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 handled the logistics, and that was a crucial role. And he was very good at it, having been a businessman, having wide connections, to be able to get the supplies up to Lake Champlain that they needed. Lake Champlain was pretty much frontier at that time. There were a few settlements, but very few, and so they had to ship all the equipment and all the nautical supplies, and get the lumber, and get the iron, and get the anchors, and get the guns, all shipped up there to the uh, the southern point on the lake where they're building the ships. So that was his largely his role in the in the campaign. Um General Gates was in charge at Fort Ticonderoga which is um on the about the middle of uh Lake Champlain on the New York shore. Um and that was the the main defensive position that was where they were going to meet the British uh once they came down. And his uh role he didn't know that much about nautical matters but he knew how to um to restore the morale of the army that was there. Uh, how to fortify Fort Ticonderoga, which had been fallen into some disrepair, and to to, uh, essentially organize the defenses um, that the British would have to overcome if they were to move down farther down the lake. So it turned out to be a combination operation, really. Uh, First, a naval battle on the lake. Well, first, I, I should take a step back and say, First, Mm -hmm. it was the building of the fleets. It was like an arms race. And that went on for about two months. It was during the summer. That delay was very important, proved to be very important for the Americans. Then there was the battle on the lake. And then the the Americans um, prepared to meet the British. The the American fleet was uh, ultimately defeated, and they prepared to meet the the British fleet at Ticonderoga. And by that time, it was November. And the British, uh, who were very familiar from uh, General Carleton, was the commander of the British forces. And he had been governor of Canada for some time. And he was very familiar with how cold it got up there. And it really does get cold in northern New York, even <laughs> in September. They're now approaching November. And he was afraid uh, that if he attacked Fort Ticonderoga, uh, the lake would freeze behind him, and that would have been a disaster for the British because they would have cut off their supplies from the north. So he made the decision. Well, we've we've dealt with the American fleet now. Um, we can just go back to Canada, spend the winter there in comfort, and come back and start the campaign again the following year and that's exactly what he did um and that saved the cause for for the Americans uh combined with uh George Washington's uh, coup at uh, Trenton in December it it gave them a some some breathing room they had another year to prepare and um that was w- what allowed them really to carry on the war
0: so why did you decide to write about the Battle of Valcour?
1: Well, I, I had written an earlier book called um, hmm. "A Band of Giants," which was a, a an overview of the Revolutionary War, um, and a, and a closer sort of personal examination of some of the some of the lesser known American commanders. Uh, and one of them was Benedict Arnold, and I was reading about the. Arnold's uh, great feat on Lake Champlain. And I thought it was curious that, uh, you know, it, it was not something that most people were familiar with. I, I had heard of it sort of just casually, but it was not given much importance. In fact, uh, David McCullough, who wrote a, a wonderful book about the Revolutionary War called 1776, that was focused on that year in the, mm-hmm. um, in the, uh, Revolutionary War, never mentioned the Northern campaign whatsoever in that whole book. And that was, that was a book focused on the war in that year. Uh, and so that's why I'm, I refer to it as the most important unknown battle of the war. Um, the reason it's unknown, I think partly was, it was remote. I mean, Lake Champlain is still pretty remote, um, up in the Adirondack Mountains. There's not, uh, you know, northern Vermont. Uh, not a lot of people are familiar with it. At that time, it was it was really wilderness. Um, but largely, I think the campaign was ignored because of Benedict Arnold. It was, even though Washington uh, was uh, soundly defeated down in around New York City, uh, it, it was much easier to sing the praises of George Washington than it was to to praise Benedict Arnold once he had once he had betrayed his country. So everything that he participated in, um, and his role was diminished. And I think that's the, largely the reason that the the campaign
0: was uh, ignored. Sure. So, are you researching or already writing your next book?
1: uh yes as a matter of fact i'm um what I decided to do having gotten even more interested in benedict arnold um from writing this book was to really go back and take another look at benedict arnold um i think it's a and you know I, what i want to do is to show not to not to condone or or excuse his uh, his betrayal but to show that he was one of the one of the not only the great um, effective generals of the, of the on the American side, but was really somebody who pushed the war into existence in its early stages. Um, I'm, I've talked about um, Fort Ticonderoga, for example.
0: so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: If mm-hmm. the Americans had not gained control of Fort Ticonderoga, it's very possible that the the war never would have really gotten off the ground um, because the British could easily have come down. The British, in 1775, when the war began at Lexington and Concord, the British controlled Fort Ticonderoga. And if they continued to control it, they would have had easy access down that corridor that I mentioned and into the colonies. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have had to have fought these battles in 1776. And he was responsible for taking over Fort Ticonderoga. And then for, um, he he immediately went up to Canada and captured one of the the only British uh, uh, significant warship on the lake and brought it down to use it for the, uh, on the American side that allowed the, um Americans to put up a defense in the north, which they wouldn't have not have been able to do uh without that so there, there are so many things about Benedict Arnold that were crucial to the war that were then ignored but by, by um historians or denigrated by historians over the years because of his betrayal so that 's uh, my goal in writing about him would be to to sort of show what a hero he was early in the war and how tragic it was that he, he did decide to uh, change sides and go over to the British.
0: Sure. So what was your research process when you were working on writing your book Valcour? Uh,
1: a lot of, uh, the material I got was, uh, writing about the um, revolutionary war, uh, um, I think historians have a somewhat of an advantage because many of the original documents of the war were published, uh, particularly during the bicentennial years in 1970s. Uh, so the you know, the naval documents, the American archives uh, that are just these huge collections of multi-volume collections of um, of documents are not only now published, but most of them are available online. So there's a lot of uh, original material you can, you can see the the letters that were written back and forth or the 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 uh, orders that went down uh from one commander to another uh you can actually read those and a lot of the research I did was from that but I also I traveled up to Lake Champlain I spent a lot of time uh looking over the sites and the trying to get a feel for the place and and what it was like up there
0: um
1: there's a wonderful museum uh called the lake champlain maritime museum that that built a replica an exact replica of one of the american gunboats and put cannon on it and had it um constructed exactly as the gunboats would have been so that's that's a, a, a great resource for you know just like living history to be able to see what a, the size of the boat and what the life would have been like on that boat um Fort Ticonderoga itself has been rebuilt uh and they have great programs there uh that uh try to bring to life the the the, the Ford and the the life in the fort. So the combination of those two things, and, you know, I've read a lot of the biographies about, of the various characters. And Philip Schuyler, for example, was, is not a very well-known American revolution general, but um, was played a very crucial role in this campaign and was quite an interesting character and has, um, his, uh, involvement in the history in the, in Albany in the Northern New York area.
0: Well, I know that you earlier wrote several crime novels. Why did you make the switch from novels to writing, uh, nonfiction history books?
1: Well, that's a, that, that's a good question. I, um, <laughs> par- partly it's, uh, just a kind of a shift in interest I guess I'd have to say you know I, mm-hmm. I started getting interested in history and um, I always try to link the two those two aspects of my career by saying that um, I'm always looking for uh, ways to examine the extremes of human experience let's say and um, I think crime and war both, um, uh, deal with people who are who are at, in those extreme situations. Uh, I wrote a book about the uh, the Dillinger Gang and the bank robbers of the 1930s, and I said, you know, to imagine yourself walking into a bank and you have a, a submachine gun under your coat and you haven't mm-hmm. started the robbery yet—you just walked in. What are you thinking? What is that? What is that um, experience like to actually be that person doing that? And I tried to recreate that in, in my writing and in writing about those things, and the same thing in wars. Like you're you're waiting for these British ships to come down on top of you with cannon that fire supersonic, um, essentially balls about the size of a softball moving at supersonic speeds that can blast through three inches of oak and if they even if they come near you they're going to knock you down and if they hit you you, they're going to kill you and there's no way to, there's nowhere to hide there's no way you can't take cover because it'll, it'll go right through the ship um what is that experience like so that's i try to i like to get at those types of personal experience and i think it um in either case, it, it kind of brings the the um, story to life rather than just um, the sort of dry description of what happened.
0: Sure. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels or uh, nonfiction books?
1: Um, I think that to start out with, and and I I used to teach a class in screenwriting which is screenwriting is interesting because it's very fundamental storytelling you know movies are not they're Mm -hmm. not uh, there's not a lot of subtlety and there's not a lot of um (laughs) of um you you know depth necessarily but you have to have that story you have to and i'd say you know do, do the research and and the more you learn the more ideas you'll have about the situation i had a student who was writing about um a um uh some kind of a crime movie that he wanted to, and and it, it involved a dispatcher a police dispatcher and as he, the d- dispatcher was uh describing the crime or something was going on he got more and more and more excited and he was yelling and And I said, you ought to do some research on that instead of just thinking you're going to make it up out of your head because that's exactly the opposite of what happens in reality. In reality, the more intense the situation, the more any dispatcher is going to speak in very clipped and very dry tones because they need to get the information across. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's part of the process of learning to be a, a dispatcher and, the, and uh, the police. Things, Little things like that can make a big difference, I think. So that type of research is important. And, of course, on the other hand, you don't want to spend so much time in research that you never get around to writing your story. And that's um, one of the, I think, more valuable pieces of advice that I got when I was, Learning to write was the most important thing about the first draft of any book is to finish it. Doesn't matter the does it come out well, does it not come out well? Does it is it including <laughs> everything you wanted to? Finish it. Then you can go back and fill in. Then you can but if you if you write a quarter and say, Well, oh, I've got to go research a lot more of this to find this out. You end up not finishing, and you don't get the big picture of what you're writing about until you finish that first draft um so I think that's that certainly I found that to be good advice just push through, finish the draft, and then go back and start your revisions, which to me is the real work of writing and the real the real pleasure really to I always enjoy revising and polishing and, uh, adding, you know, little details. Uh, that's where you're, you're actually doing the writing. Uh, but having that first draft, it gives you your foundation. So I think that's a, an important aspect of it.
0: I'm curious with the nonfiction history books that you write now, when you're writing, do you get to sections where, you know, you, as you're writing it you realize that you need to do more research and do you just make notes and then kind of go back um and do additional research how, how does that how does that work for you yeah i, I think that would be now? a good
1: a good description of it i i i tend to do quite a bit of research before i even start mm-hmm. and but then write through and if it's something i say oh i need more i need to get into more detail about this or that um aspect of the story I will just sort of note that down and then and continue on, and then go back and do that research and and add that. And uh, but it's um, I, I try to avoid you know write a little bit and research a little bit. Uh, I right, think right. you you know do a sort of basic research and then try to imagine the story. You know, to just forget about the research, just what you know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, write the story. And then, okay, there's going to be gaps and uh, areas you want to flesh out, so that you want to go back
0: and do more research afterwards. Gotcha. So, what nonfiction books or novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I I, I could point to two books that are particularly
1: um, I found particularly enjoyable. And actually, in the middle of the f- first one, which is called. Um, Jesse James, the last rebel of the Civil War. And to me, that's a a really exemplary piece of nonfiction. It's it's not as it's the title tends to make you think of uh, a cowboy type story, you know, of mm-hmm. Western. But um it's really a portrait of Missouri during the during before, during, and after the Civil War, and Jesse James was um, uh, uh, a participant in the activities that went on there, which are absolutely mind-boggling in their in the horror of what the 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 um, neighbor against neighbor, because Missouri was split right down the middle between the Southern slaveholders and the and more northern uh, people who were uh, opposed to slavery, and uh, we think of this myth of Jesse James, sort of the gunfighter and the and the bank robber, which he turned into later. But during the Civil War and immediately immediately following the Civil War, uh, he was a he was an absolute sadistic psychopathic killer and as were many of the what they called bushwhackers out there so it's an interesting story and it's and, it, and it's it's a portrait of the time as well as following along his life story um another book which was, which i read not too long ago was called uh, golden hill and it was um a story about new york city in the 1720s i think and it was like a very very effective evocation of what new york was like in those early days when it was just a small uh, town really at the at the tip of manhattan mm-hmm. and what and uh the the combination of the dutch influence um the the uh again and interestingly both of these um books incorporated, uh, elements of slavery into them. You know, the slavery was a big factor in the, in the story of Jesse James. And it was also a factor in this book because slavery it was very, quite common in New York at that time. And, um, but as a, it's very, it's a very rollicking, fast moving story, very adventurous story. But, um, but also, you know, had these elements uh, that was obviously very well
0: researched uh, uh, about New York in the 18th century. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? Uh, I I have a website. uh,
1: It's called jackkellybooks.com. And uh, I have a contact page on there if you have any questions, people have any questions, or I always like to hear, you know, comments from people who have any reaction to what I've done. And um, I have information about all my books on there. So, um and the Valcour, uh, in fact, I even have a link uh, if you want to get a signed copy of the book. Uh, I've arranged with a bookstore near me to, you know, have signed copies available and I'll ship them out to anyone. Um So that's... Uh, I'm not really great. I have a, I have a, I have a presence on Facebook, (laughs) but I can't say I'm, I'm not really a devotee of Facebook or Twitter. (laughs) Um, So those are a little inactive. But I, I'm also
0: on there. Sure. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jack Kelly, author of the new book, Valcor, the 1776 campaign that saved the cause of liberty. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jack, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's, it's really been fun. Great. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.